Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about privacy and intimate relationships. I think I want to begin with a quote from the writings that I did all the way back in college called Different Drummer. And in fact, some of the writings that inspired part of the elements of this particular show. In there, there was a quote that said the following. Sometimes the mind imposes censorship, not by holding information back, but by giving too much out. What I meant by that was that at a certain point, if you put something into a journal entry, if you write an essay, if you're a little bit too open, if you're a little bit too transparent, it makes that particular thing you've written much harder to share with any but a very intimate audience. In other words, by including too much information or failing to cover certain aspects of a topic with the concept of swim, someone who isn't me, you have effectively censored yourself by writing something that, while honest and true, can't be fully shared. This is one of the conundrums we have when it comes to managing the relationships between privacy and intimacy in our modern world. And as I mentioned in the episode about abortion, <clears throat> misconceptions about abortion, one of the things that I talked about there was the problem that certain religious conservatives have with their notion that there is no such thing as a right to privacy. And I called out then in that particular show that I don't believe that those people live their life like they think there is no such thing as a right to privacy. In fact, most people, especially most conservative people, live their lives like there is an obligation to privacy and that obligation to privacy is being routinely violated. So I'm going to build on that just a little bit. But to do so, I think I want to start kind of quickly by quoting some scripture, bringing in a Christian perspective, because I'm going to make an argument that I think some people will find challenging. And it's this, that if you, if you take away privacy, if you deny that there is such a thing, if we have to act as though that's not a right, that is ultimately going to compromise intimacy. And I'll talk about why. And if you compromise intimacy, if you take um, some of the dynamic of intimacy away, if you make it planned and scheduled and, and not dynamic, not spontaneous, not truly interpersonal in every sense of the word, you interfere with the growth and development of faith. Because if you cannot form an intimate relationship with the people that you love, whether those be people be family or friends, you're not going to be able to develop an intimate relationship with God. In my perspective, it is just as simple as that. So what does the Bible have to say about this question of privacy and uh, intimacy? It doesn't address the issue head on. I think that it's probably pretty clear that it doesn't address the issues that are so controversial related to U.S. Supreme Court decisions on privacy. Uh, it doesn't address those issues head on either. Uh, there's no mention of abortion per se, at least not directly. Um, you can infer what some of the morality might be. And uh, you can make applications, but it only takes you so far. As far as privacy goes, though, at least in the person of Paul, we have a pretty clear set of sayings that come when he is discussing, particularly in the books to the letters to Corinthians, he is discussing the church being the body and how the body functions and how everyone doesn't have the same 
um, standard, doesn't do the same thing, doesn't have the same role or the same responsibility. And yet all those different aspects of who we are, when we come together as a group of people, all those unique differences play a crucial role because the body of Christ is made up of different parts, just like the human body is made up of different parts. And uh, it's not a problem that the hand doesn't help us walk. And it's not a problem that for the most part, our feet don't help us, you know, pick up things or, you know, write or stuff like that, that these different body parts have different purposes. But it's in that section that Paul introduces the concept of certain parts of our body being more private than others. He uses different terms depending on the translation. These might be called the weaker parts or the less presentable parts, but he's essentially talking about what, what we in our modern era truly do call our private parts. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to cite a modern translation to do so with the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 21 to 26. So then, the eye cannot say to your hand, I don't need you, nor can the head say to the feet, well, I don't need you. On the contrary, we cannot do without the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, and those parts that we think aren't worth very much are the ones that we treat with greater care, while the parts of the body which don't look very nice are treated with special modesty which the more beautiful parts do not need. God himself has put the body together in such a way as to give greater honor to those parts that need it. And so there is no division in the body, but all of its different parts have the same concern for one another. If one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer with it. If one part of the body is praised, all the parts share its happiness. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. The fact that we have special social mores about keeping certain parts of the body covered and uh, certain things require the very the very fact that a striptease act has the goal of revealing certain things begs the question that those certain things otherwise would not be revealed in other words those other things are private and i believe that 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 act that distance between what the example that an apostle might use in scripture about uh, the way the body works and which parts of the body we're more modest about that isn't necessarily the reason why a striptease act functions at all. I believe there's something inherent inside us that even without the words of Paul in Scripture, we would understand certain parts of the body are held in a special place. So, that's Paul's perspective. What is mine? Well, let me explain my position on this by talking a little bit about a conversation that came up in a Sunday school class many years ago. This is at least three, four years back. And we were talking, uh, decrying, to be honest, the, the difference between people getting together. I mean, do you know the – we may know the first name of our neighbors. To be honest with you, there's times when I'm more likely to recall quickly my, the name of my neighbor's dog than the name of my neighbor's kids. You know, it's just we're a different society than we were back when I as a kid not only knew the names of my neighbors, I probably knew their middle initial and maybe even their middle name. Uh, we knew a lot more. We spent a lot more time interacting with the people that we live near. And in this world where you can jump online and find out almost anything about anybody if you really know how to pry, we know almost nothing about the people that we probably would be the first to seek help from if our house caught on fire. That irony. And a lot of people were saying, you know, you truck out the usual suspects in these situations. You know, people, well, it's the fault of rock and roll music. It's the fault of video games. Now, the video game argument might, might hold up. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, it's the movie rating system. It's the sexual revolution. You know, you have a, a group of people who oftentimes when you're having a, a religion or a church-based discussion about moral questions or moral problems, and especially if it's looking at the way our society has changed on us, 
you can't have a conversation with some folks without abortion being the reason that everything's gone wrong. And we had that part of the conversation was going on uh, delicately, politely, but it was going on. And then all of a sudden, when answering really a specific question about uh, the differences that we think were probably not generational, but maybe from an era, back then people seemed willing, maybe even eager, to welcome people into their homes, to congregate on somebody's front porch or on their back deck. And you don't see that quite so much anymore. If a stranger started walking up toward my front porch, my first thoughts wouldn't be, great, somebody I need to meet and talk to. My first thoughts might be, oh no, what's this? And it's that difference. And again, I don't think it's generational because I believe that all age groups living today have the same hesitation about being open and opening our homes and opening our doors that you didn't exist in a, in a previous era when at that time, all generations, all age groups didn't hesitate to leave their home unlocked, certainly not when they were at home and didn't hesitate to leave their cars unlocked. Uh, I can remember the moments in time when when my parents sort of changed their approach from every time you went into a grocery store or a department store, you didn't want to lock the door because locking the doors would make it, make it harder to get back in and put packages in the back seat and stuff like that. I can remember sort of the time, not the exact moment, but the time when suddenly going to the grocery store or the department store meant that a mandatory step was being certain you'd locked every door. And then, you know, going through the process of unlocking those doors again, back before the era of automatic door, you know, and key fobs and stuff like that, locking every door was a pain because you'd have to go in and you'd have to, the driver would have to unlock the door that they have the key to, and then they would have to unlock the seat behind them. And somebody would have to get in behind the driver and go across the seat and unlock the other side. It was a process because you didn't just have a button. You didn't have a button inside the car. At least I can remember back far, back that far. And certainly back then we didn't have a button on our keychain that would take care of all that locking and unlocking for us. We've, we've become very good at locking and unlocking doors. And I think part of the reason we've become so good at it is because our society has changed on us. So we were talking about that difference of what it is that stops people from going out to their front porch or their back porch and inviting neighbors over and hanging out with, hanging out with people in the neighborhood. And one of the women in the class, I'll, I'll use her name, her name is Marilyn came up with a stunning idea. And I'm, I'm dragging this out a little bit. I'm delaying it some to see if anyone else gets to the same place that Marilyn got. Because to be honest, I wasn't there. When she uttered these words, it surprised me how right she was. Because I mentioned that the only thing in that other list that might be a good explanation for why people don't spend as much time out congregating with neighbors and friends and spend more time indoors in the era that we're living in, that video games might be part of that puzzle. But even then, I don't think that it's the inherent quality of the video game. Certainly, to play a video game, you have to be in front of a TV. You have to be sort of on a couch or on the floor. You have to be inside. But the real epiphany for me was air conditioning. Marilyn said the key factor keeping people inside their homes, more likely than outside their homes, was air conditioning. In the heat of at least half of the year, People no longer retreat to the front porch with a glass of lemonade to cool down. Outside used to be more comfortable than inside, especially during the summertime. Now, people tend to be more isolated inside their homes, and a lot of it is because inside the home has become more physically comfortable than outside. It seems almost impossible to call somebody on the phone these days without either interrupting a television show they're watching or a video game they're playing or a movie that they've put on and I'm not pointing any fingers either, because I know, 
I'm just as guilty. I'm maybe three times as guilty. The old adage that if you point one finger at somebody, three fingers are pointing back at you, that, well, that's me here, because I do love my media. But there's another issue besides just air conditioning. The other issue for me is our current relationship with privacy. Privacy is a concept. I think people value privacy more today than we did in the past. And one reason, and there's, there's many reasons, one reason is our exhibitionistic and voyeuristic culture. It makes a great many of us sort of fret over who is peeping in on us or who's peeping in on somebody else. I don't think Christians can be held responsible for, for that piece of the trend. It kind of just happened around us. But there is another factor, another factor that I think Christians probably have some accountability for. And it's this. Privacy is the driving political force behind controversies like abortion, school prayer restrictions, homosexual rights, and more. Virtually the entire sexual revolution, its related issues, and all the things that many people feel are problems that came from the sexual revolution, these are all driven or have a contributing factor related to privacy with a capital P. In response to all that, many Christians determined that um, all those things were bad. Now, I'm not going to say myself that that entire list of things are bad, but just to use the easy example and to tie out to the previous show I did, abortion. Abortion's a bad thing. So for a Christian, you might come along and say, you know what, um, this is bad, and in the interest of society is one of the community and not the individual. This is an interesting point. When you look at pro-life politics versus pro-choice politics, one of the first things that you have to get past, and maybe it's impossible to get past, is that the core belief of the pro-life movement is that the childbearing of every member of our society is their responsibility. And the perspective of the pro-choice movement is the childbearing of each individual member of society is that individual member's, member of society's responsibility. And that's a bridge that's very hard to, get to, to come across with people. There's no halfway on it because the bridge itself has pretty much been blown up by the way we manage the power politics behind all this stuff. But essentially you've got one core assumption that um, my neighbor three doors down is pregnant, therefore if she doesn't have that child, I have something to say about it. That's a pro-life perspective, whereas the pro-choice perspective would be if my neighbor three doors down has been pregnant but does not have that child, that is between her, her husband, her doctor, her pastor or priest. That's, that's her issue, not my issue. And you can see where privacy creeps into this thing right at that point in time, that when you're looking at these political issues, you can't ignore the importance of privacy. And so the way I tend to talk about it, to try to, to, try to make a Christian perspective that works regardless of your politics, because there is such a thing as Christians who are pro-choice, and there is such a thing, obviously, as Christians who are pro-life. The difference in the perspective that I usually tend to rely on is this difference between the perspective that the focus should be on the community instead of the focus being on the individuals. So when I look at this community notion, this idea that abortion is a problem and other social issues are a problem and privacy is one of the driving forces behind it, so privacy is bad because privacy is a piece of what causes those problems. That perspective I, I view as pre-Christ. I view it as Old Testament thinking. And when you hear people quote chapter and verse on issues like this, which are most likely defined as the chapters and verses they are quoting, are either from the Old Testament, from Hebrew scriptures, or they are from a New Testament writer citing Hebrew scripture as a basis to make a, a new observation or just a restatement of the previous observation. See, the notion back in, in the Old Testament time 
was that laws needed to keep everyone in line with God's expectations. And even those who had turned their back on the church, even those who were completely unchurched, who'd never heard the gospel, or who were not part of Jewish society, even the strangers among them had to obey these laws. Because the Old Testament point of view was, the laws were God's laws, and as a community we needed to keep them, that there was community accountability. Before Christ, when you read through the passages in the Old Testament, especially the, the history books, as they're called, not the books of prophecy, not the books of law, but the books that simply try to tell the story. Those books repeat over and over and over the idea that this entire nation fell, or this entire nation was struck down, because individuals in that nation violated God's laws. And so the notion that you still hear today from some people in the, in the post-Christian era say things like, well, you know what, uh, as a nation, we're going to be struck down, or, or to be a Christian nation, we have to do that. It's all about the nation, and it's that national perspective. I, I like to look at it this way. The idea is that the light, and this is, you know, this is Christ speaking, light came into the world. Um, but in this case, the light has to be forced into these corners of society. It can't just be offered to people. It can't just be shown to people or shined on people. It has to be forced into these corners of society because it's important that we wipe out all the darkness in order to cleanse our nation. That's, that's the point of view. Now, it sounds like I'm speaking critically of the point of view. I will, I'll honestly acknowledge that's not my viewpoint. I think Christ is the crux of human history, certainly from a Christian perspective. And I think there's clear differences in our relationship with God before Christ versus after he came. And I get a little bit dismayed when I find so many people who describe themselves as evangelical Christians who don't tend to think that anything Christ did was that crucial. For the time being, though, let me just talk about the logic and the reasoning in this argument, because it's not, it's not like it's completely unsound. I wouldn't go so far as to call it wrong. Certainly, if I was speaking with somebody who had a Jewish perspective and a very orthodox, old school Jewish perspective, it might be inappropriate for me to call that perspective wrong, because for that person, that perspective would be the equivalent of what Christians call biblical. So let me look at it from let me look at that argument positively for a moment. Repentance and accountability are good things. Great Christian leaders have called those things essential, as a matter of fact. And privacy can be seen as an opposite to repentance and accountability. I don't think it's the opposite. I don't think it's necessarily opposed. Privacy is not opposed to repentance. But to keep things private is to not repent and thereby dodge accountability. So let me emphasize, I'm going to grant the fact that total privacy means not repenting, not being accountable, and avoiding the blessings that a community of faith can offer to everyone who struggles. But let me also offer a perspective that is not pre-Christ. What does it mean to be accountable to someone else? Let's keep it simple and just talk about loved ones, uh, friends, family, those that we really, really know and love. And I want to put my answer into the realm of intimacy. To be accountable in this sense, is to voluntarily, to freely share something so personal that the giving is in and of itself a gift. Your sharing that with somebody confers to the person that you've shared it with a great place of honor. You become fragile, and your loved one is then obliged to be delicate in their possession, their handling of this information. You've given them a truth, and that truth needs to be, well, intimate. You know, is that not truly what intimacy is all about? 
We must not reserve this concept of intimacy to mean something that pornography so recklessly exploits. Intimacy is personal. Someone who flaunts what should be the most discreet parts of her or his body on the largest possible stage is not being intimate with anyone by doing so. Now let's walk through that again. Somebody who exposes the things that Paul refers to as the weaker parts of our body that need to be kept private and we need to be modest about. Somebody who exposes those parts on the largest possible stage may be violating the the game plan of modesty. They may be, you know, falling pretty far away from the question of whether their behavior is private or not, but they're not being intimate. Why? How could it be said that her showing me her birthmark would not be intimate? Well, it it certainly could be. It would probably very much be intimate, maybe even inappropriately intimate, if she was showing me her birthmark in a certain location, and we were the only ones at the time uh, who were, you know, kind of sharing this information with each other. But what's missing, what's there in that example is the privacy. And without that privacy, you know, you don't have intimacy. You don't have it. Look at the example that Jesus Christ set. When he was taunted by crowds or dragged before the council, he refused to dance. He wasn't going to do any call me Messiah twist and shout for any audience. On the other hand, with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he told her straight up. It was noon on a very hot day and they were alone. They were the only people who were going to the well at the, you know, perhaps the worst time of day to be outside. So he was able to speak privately with her for a while. And he told her, hey, I'm the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. In a way that he never, ever did in front of any of the large crowds or courts or authorities. With those he healed at the beginning of his ministry, this is especially true throughout Mark's gospel. I think Mark captures this aspect best. Jesus told him to keep quiet. Don't tell people what I've done. This is, you know, between you and me. If Jesus was speaking French in those passages. He might have used the phrase entre nous. It means between us. Keep this ours. Even with the disciples, this group of 12 we think of as being closest to him, key moments of his relationship with the Father, God the Son, God the Father moments, were only witnessed by two or three of them, not the whole 12. At the Transfiguration, Jesus invited Peter, James, and John. And Mark chapter 9, verse 9, it says Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. That's a quote. Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, don't tell anyone what you've seen. They recognized with awe and wonder the intimate moment that God himself had shared with them by letting them be there to see that. Again, later at at Gethsemane, those same intimate allies were chosen to pray at the same time Jesus was praying. Jesus may have only been several yards away praying in the garden, and he wanted to share that moment. He wanted to share even more with them than what we have recorded in Scripture for this long and intense time of seeking his Father's will and strengthening his own personal resolve. All these witnesses recorded for us in the Bible were just a few verses because they fell asleep, and I often wonder about the rest. At the same time, though, I'm very thankful that Jesus was intentional about allowing this little bit to be heard and recorded and shared. It was an intimate moment, both because he brought someone in to see it, but he did so surrounded by the privacy of saying, this is between us. 
Is privacy the opposite of repentance and accountability? Let me ask that question again. Is privacy really the opposite of repentance and accountability? Or is privacy truly a key element? Is privacy the difference? Is it the line between a letter that you write to somebody and a blog that you put out there for everybody and anybody? Is it the distance between finding an ally and finding an audience to get back to our striptease artist? Is it the chasm between seeking help and seeking validation? Yes, privacy has been at the heart of our political and constitutional battles over abortion and other social issues, but Christians are mistaken to argue against privacy either as a right or, as I would say, as just a plain fact of reality. On the political side, Christians need to acknowledge that repentance cannot be forced. The right laws, aggressively applied, might succeed in preventing anyone from working at their occupation on a Sunday. But it won't get us anywhere near to the true observation of Sabbath, which from my perspective doesn't actually have to be on Sunday. I believe that we can, if we really put our mind to it, we can force every child in every public school to repeat the words of any prayer you want to write. That includes children of Muslims, children of atheists, you name it. But you know what? Parrots don't pray. At least not when they're repeating phrases in exchange for sunflower seeds or doing what they have to do to avoid getting locked up. On the social side, how many people miss opportunities for Christian fellowship because they perceive the followers of Christ to be against privacy? Ready to cast blame, ready to point an accusing finger, or ready to out them publicly. And what happens if they perceive this, this Christian hostility toward intimacy and use it to stay in hiding? From a Christian perspective, if those people don't share what they're struggling with, are they better off? The Roman Catholics consider penance, confessional, as a sacrament. Whether formally or informally, there's a lot of Protestant churches who hold similar esteem for accountability groups and accountability relationships, places where people share with each other the things that they're struggling with. So you have somebody that you can trust who is there to say, remember, you're not going to want to put yourself in that situation again. That requires the, well, the, the confessional booth. You know, talk about that combination of intimacy and privacy. You're supposed to be in there alone, in a booth, two-sided though it may be, speaking with somebody who has both a church obligation and a legal obligation not to share the intimate details that you relay. So the privacy is what actually enables the intimacy that allows you to say, yes, I can talk about the deepest, darkest most frightening things I'm dealing with because the person I'm talking to is going to keep it private. And if they weren't going to keep it private, it would be impossible for me to have any intimate moment with that individual. Air conditioning. Air conditioning led me to think that more than just SUN sunshine is being missed when people keep themselves to themselves on warm spring and summer days. From a Christian perspective, maybe some S-O-N sunshine is being missed when we don't manage the relationships of privacy and intimacy. When people cherish privacy at the expense of intimacy, something of great importance is lost. Relationships, in fact, that I believe God blesses with gifts like sharing and caring and love. Sometimes the mind imposes censorship not by holding information back, but by giving too much out. If you give too much out in the wrong way, if you provide the information too publicly, 
if you don't have the relationship built, if you don't have your audience in mind when you're writing that letter, or the letter could go anywhere to anybody, you're going to share less. And that's the reason that I suggest that without the right amount of privacy, there can be no intimacy. And as a Christian, without intimacy between believers, without intimacy between friends and family and loved ones, you've got very little shot at experiencing love, not the way it's meant to be. All righty then. <laughs> Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Buffy, Firefly, gaming, books, costuming, and general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. A couple of things I struggled with about our different drummer this week. One was he's another one of those individuals that uh, worked in tandem with somebody else. So do you cite one without the other? Do you separate them? Uh, the argument for separating them is that if you'd like to hold the other person for his own different drummer uh, recognition later. But the other thing is that it's about a moment in time because my uh, esteem for this individual comes from a television program that I saw him on many years ago and the corresponding radio program that I never heard because I didn't live in Los Angeles at the time. I want to cite um, Dr. Drew Penske, who probably to most of us is just known as Dr. Drew. For me, Drew Penske is best known for the program Loveline. Now, to put this into perspective, when I was in college, um, we first became aware of the television program by Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Hello, you are on the air, with her Eastern European accent, talking very frankly about sex, sexuality, sexual matters, and sexual issues, both on television and on radio appearances. In 1984, while Drew Penske was a medical student, he started appearing on an Ask the Surgeon segment of a Sunday night show on radio station KROQ. Now, I don't know if this is still true today, but if I'd lived in Los Angeles in 1984, I would have been listening to KROQ. It was perhaps the only radio station or the first radio station when I was at that age, that, you know, that late college, getting out of college age, where I heard the Smiths on the radio. I don't believe I ever heard the Smiths on any other than maybe independent college radio, but... For a major radio station uh, in a major market like Los Angeles, KROQ was that kind of radio station. Ask the Surgeon soon combined with a, with a program called Loveline on another Sunday night segment and ended up being hosted by uh, Jim Trenton and Drew Pinsky together. Now, I never heard this radio show. I encountered Loveline 10 years later when it debuted on MTV as a television show featuring Drew Pinsky and Adam Carolla. And that combination of the Adam Carolla comedy the celebrity guests and just how interesting it is to hear sexual perspectives or even sexual stories from celebrity guests really worked well. And of course, Dr. Drew being the anchor of this sort of 
reeled everyone else in from time to time. The other thing is because of the time that he came out, unlike Dr. Ruth, who I would describe as being more or less before the AIDS era, she might have been on television during it, but I was aware of her at the time that herpes was the biggest thing that you needed to be worried about from a sexually transmitted disease. There were more dangerous sexually transmitted diseases that all had some sort of medical course of action to address them. But, you know, the un, the, un, the incurable problem at the time was, was herpes, which obviously is, is a far cry from the danger, the risk, and the scope of the incurability of AIDS. So Dr. Drew ended up bringing a very pro-safe sex message to the program. And I'm not going to say that uh, the Love Line on MTV was a show that I never missed, but Love Line on MTV was a show that I tried to watch because I found it to be very informative. So here I am. I'm married, having been in a stable relationship for years before that even. Um, I'm not watching the Love Line show for tricks and tips. I'm not on the prowl. I don't have problems related to uh, promiscuous sexual behavior. Um, so I was more or less just sort of getting a, getting a feel for what everyone else was doing, everyone else was talking about. And a couple of things that I really liked about the show, and again, I liked the fact that Dr. Drew was fairly matter-of-fact and uh, far more compassionate, obviously, than Adam Carolla. Adam Carolla's job on the show was to be funny. But I, just a couple of examples that I'll use. Many, many times someone would call talking about uh, particularly aggressive, maybe even maybe the right word is risky sexual fetishes. And Dr. Drew would more often than not be able to decipher just by asking four or five questions uh, what happened to them in their childhood that might be accountable for this. And I think that it was probably a good thing that lots of us, even those of us who are maybe more modest and would prefer not to hear that much about people's private lives, probably pretty helpful to hear just exactly how devastating and far-reaching the impact is of, you know – inappropriate sexual behavior at too young of an age, whether that be a sexual contact between people who are both too young to know better, but especially things like incest, things like rape, the, the, the mark left on, on an individual from that sort of untoward sexual contact at a young age has consequences that, that essentially last a lifetime and often enough create situations that's, that propagate themselves over and over. We know this intellectually, but it is a very, very different thing to hear a radio conversation or a telephone conversation broadcast on TV between somebody who's a doctor but not that person's doctor and somebody who probably needs to be um, seeing somebody about getting some psychiatric or at least psychological care for the kind of trauma that they have endured. So from the perspective of, of empathy, I really think that Loveline was a fantastic show and that Dr. Drew was the key cog in that wheel that brought in the, the empathic nature of things and was truly educational. Again, I was never going to have to worry about what it meant to use certain techniques to keep myself safe. I was at a point in my marriage where we were having kids, and it, it wasn't necessary for me to be worried about whether certain lubricants biodegrade certain condoms. That wasn't a problem I had to deal with, yet I still found it very interesting. And to me, a lot of that information came from Dr. Drew Pensky. The other one, though, that I'll cite is a guest appearance by the singer Poe. Now, she was a kind of an alternative rock, alternative folk sort of singer who had her very quick moment in time and I don't think has really left that much of a legacy on rock music. But she, at the time, she was pretty well known and she had a single out and she was on the Loveline program as a guest. And sometimes the guests just help you know, the dialogue and the conversation with callers. Sometimes they answer questions either from the host or from the audience, but sometimes they get very personal and very revealing. And it's, it's in this environment, bolstered by the sort of stability provided by Dr. Drew, but also by the uh, 
inherently reckless, comedic nature of Adam Carolla that some guests really opened up and shared. And, and Poe is the one that I remember because she kind of challenged the notion that you hear from a lot of people who approach feminism from a conservative perspective or any sort of radical perspective. So if you look at feminism as, again, a political spectrum, and you say a lot of times we view feminism as being part of, of a liberal worldview and just sort of ordinary liberalism or pragmatic liberalism, I'm not complaining about that aspect. But what Poe was talking about was a reaction to the conservative view of feminism and all the radical views, because there are certain elements of feminism that believe that all sexuality is rape. It's just the feminist perspective that what the man's doing to the woman is always, always violent, always unfriendly, always welcome, always invasive, always bad. Well, that's a radical worldview. But for conservatives, conservative women who consider themselves feminist often would describe acts like fellatio as being acts where men are getting one over on women, men are taking advantage of women, and that they would prefer that certain elements of sexual behavior never happen, or if those elements of sexual behavior do happen, that they happen in a way that is carefully controlled, because to them, fellatio is something that a man is doing to a woman. And what Poe did, that again, again, neither here nor there to me, didn't, uh, didn't affect the way I live my life. But what she did that I thought was really interesting was she called out the fact that for her it was the opposite was true. That her quote-unquote feminist perspective on fellatio was that at no point in time in, her, in any sexual relationship will she ever have more complete control over her lover than at that moment in time. That essentially she is able to treat him like a joystick and play the game the way she wants was her perspective. That kind of conversation wasn't going to come from Dr. Ruth. And if that kind of conversation comes today, it's almost just part of the white noise of our society. But at that moment in time in the middle of the 1990s, when a pop rock music star who's come and frankly gone already takes advantage of the, those minutes in the spotlight to share things that, frankly, we never would have dreamed to ask her in the first place. A lot of that came out of the structure that the Loveline program had and wouldn't have worked without Dr. Drew. Now, the reason that I mentioned I have some reservations about citing this particular different drummer is that I do not like reality TV. If I had my way, the only reality TV I would ever watch is sports. So for that reason, I can't claim to even name the titles of other things that Dr. Drew has done since the late 1990s. I don't watch celebrity rehab programs. I don't watch um, his strictly sex or strictly speaking programs. I don't, I don't watch any of those. I have essentially lost track of him as a quote-unquote celebrity. But for his moment in time, he did essential work. I don't want to assume that he's still doing very good work. And I don't want to say that he's probably not. I don't know, because it's a reality TV thing. And in that sense, bringing the celebrity into it, it never really works for me. Maybe part of it is that you don't have Adam Carolla on the other side of the couch poking that person with the proverbial pin and you know taking the steam out of him. Because there's something inherently narcissistic about these sort of um, celebrity reality TV-based shows. It just doesn't work for me. I think maybe the, the thing that many people like about Survivor is that Survivor has historically been just a random group of people. And uh, I've heard people from, from Europe speak about preferring Big Brother. Again, the same idea. They may be a random group of people that we grow to dislike very strongly because, again, that's the nature of reality TV and part of the reason I don't watch it. But the celebrity piece just brings in something that just taints the whole thing. It's just a touch too uh, narcissistic. However, when it comes to speaking to average, ordinary people, 
whether those be people dealing with a serious sexual problem, whether those be people who are just confused and, and call up on a homophobic rant. And Dr. Drew would then ask the kinds of questions that I've been asking, frankly, in recent shows to reel them in and make them understand that you got to walk a mile in someone else's shoes before you can complain about their arches did very good work at the time and well worth being remembered. And it seems odd to say, well, would you ever buy a box set of a radio call-in show or in this respect, a TV call-in show and watch 25, 30 years later, the question and answer that took place at that particular point in history, you know, normally you'd be inclined to say, no, I would never watch that. I would never find that interesting, but you know what? Wouldn't surprise me if at some point in my life, I found the archival footage of that Loveline MTV show. Well worth a watch. I appreciate you letting me share some things in this inappropriate conversation. It's a little bit ironic that I'm talking about privacy and intimacy and in the course of the show bringing up some things which probably would be inappropriate conversations in public. So, yeah, I appreciate it. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the website has show notes and comments enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. No W's in front of that, just the inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. I also can be reached via email at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.